0: The most valuable possession of any Christian is a copy of the Scriptures. You wouldn't always know that, the way some treat their Bibles. Going without them for weeks at a time. Not getting into them, but if indeed the Bible is God's revelation to man, if indeed it is the love letter from heaven to earth, then the most valuable possession you have is your Bible. I'd like to read a quote to you, and I won't tell you who it is until after I read the quote, but this man obviously esteemed the Scriptures when he said, I believe the Bible is the best gift that God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Abraham Lincoln said that. Boy, it would be great to have candidates like that to vote for these days, wouldn't it? No place else to go but the Word of God, the greatest gift that God ever gave to man. Now, as some of you know, this is the third week that we are still camping in verse 3. As we said in the beginning, we are moving slowly through the book of Jude. It is a microscopic method. The first week we looked at what it means to contend for the faith and why we need to do it. Last time we discovered what the faith is in contradistinction to heresy. What is orthodox historic teaching as opposed to what cults believe and teach. The central issues of Christianity we discussed last week. Tonight we want to look at that last part of this verse because there are lots of questions and we've really never covered it before. And that is... "...the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints." I think we should read it in context for those who haven't been with us in the past. "...beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend or put up a good fight for the faith, earnestly uh, for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints." That little phrase caught me, and I get lots of questions on the faith delivered to the saints. How was it delivered to the saints? How did we get this book? What does inspiration mean? How do we know that this is really the Word of God? I mean, there are lots of books that people read, and they claim that they have authority in them. But how was this book delivered to the saints? And that's important that we understand that because we are contending for this book defending the faith. We've already discovered that the Bible is an amazing book. In fact, most of us know that the Bible is the best-selling book of any other book in human history. It's available to 97% of the world's population, unlike any other book ever written, ancient or modern. However, it seems that though there are Bibles everywhere, they... It's the least read book. Almost every household in America has one, but it's become a decoration. It's become something on the coffee table to press flowers, to keep family records, births, deaths, marriages. But it's seldom ever read. I remember growing up with the Bible in our home. I don't think that thing was ever cracked open more than a few times to look at the pictures. In fact, I remember opening it when I was first a Christian, and I think I cracked the binding. Hadn't been open for so long. Charles Spurgeon said, Perhaps there is no book more neglected than the Bible. I believe that there are more moldy Bibles in this world than there are any sort of neglected books. We have no book that is so much bought and then so speedily laid aside and so little used As the Bible. In fact, Spurgeon said, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. It's collected so thick. You notice going through this book that you never find the word Bible used. The word Bible isn't in the Bible. Not that that's important, but the word Bible means book or books. It's a compilation of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament. 27 in the New Testament. It comes from the Latin Biblia or the Greek Biblos, which also means book or books. And it was by the 2nd century AD that Christians started calling it the book, the Bible. And it reminds me of what we've told you before, Sir Walter Scott, when he was dying, and he was dying in his library, we told you about, told his assistant, bring me the book If his assistant would have been the scholar that Walter Scott was, he would have known exactly what he was talking about, the Bible. And he said, but Sir Scott, you have so many books, which one? He said, the Bible, the only book for a dying man. The Bible, the book. The Bible tells us about the character of God. It tells us about the nature of man. It was used in times past to tell us about history. It's more than just a revelation to us. It is God's love letter, but it's also a book of history, how God called Abram, the development of the nation of Israel, a history of the genealogies leading up to the Messiah, and then on through the early part of church history in the New Testament. The Bible served one time as a basis for science. I know that's hard for some of you to believe. But modern science, as we know it, which was developed in its beginnings in the 17th century, was developed and research started coming to fruition because scientists at that time believed that there was order in this universe created by the God of the Bible. And the Bible was the basis for early scientific research. Modern law. Jurisprudence is based upon the laws of the Scripture. So science, medicine, law owes its roots to the Bible, the Scripture. And plus, beyond that, millions for centuries have turned to the Bible for solace, inspiration, in a time of need to find answers and direction for their lives. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways or methods spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his own son whom he made heir of all things and through whom also he made the world he makes a bold assertion God spoke God spoke God spoke is the beginning of revelation. And it's the beginning of inspiration. God spoke to man at various times through various methods in history. And once and for all, He's spoken to us by His own Son, whom the Bible declares is the living Word of God, the Logos of God, the very Word of God in human flesh. I bring that up because so often comes the question, or I should say comes the doubt of a divine being, if there is one, as the agnostic would say, communicating to man. Is it logical that God or a supernatural being could or would communicate to man? The atheist doesn't believe in God. The agnostic isn't quite sure. He's without knowledge, hence the word agnosco. I don't know if there's a God. If there is a God, he will declare, he hasn't communicated to man, either because he is not able or he has chosen not to. Is it logical that God would communicate His truth through man, deliver, as we read in Jude verse 3, to man? Yes, for a couple of reasons. If the Bible is true, then it reveals that we serve a personal God. He has a personality. He can love. He can feel. And being a person, He seeks to communicate. Secondly, you and I can communicate, right? You and I have telephones, we have fax machines, we can write letters, we can speak with each other. As beings, you and I can communicate. Well, if we are created by a creator, couldn't the creator who made the created thing that can communicate, couldn't he himself communicate? The Bible says that God has given out his messages in many different ways, and let's categorize them into two. General revelation and specific revelation. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 19 in your Old Testament. Psalm 19 is a great balance between general revelation and special revelation or specific revelation. God revealed Himself, His attributes, His power through creation. But God revealed His love his immutability, his sovereignty, especially through his word. And so we read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day and day utters speech, or literally bubbles forth speech. And night and night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. He, has set them in, a, he has, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven, its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7, there's a change. He goes from the creation of God to the word or the law or the statutes of God. The law of the Lord is perfect or flawless, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, before we get into the next verse, keep in mind that premise statement we began with. The Bible is the most valuable possession you have. And what Abraham Lincoln said, it's God's greatest gift to man. Notice what the writer of Psalms 19 says. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The Bible is valuable. You ought to love it. It ought to nurture you and nourish you constantly, daily. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, said David. The Swedish proverb declares, Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. David said, By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God spoke. God spoke generally. God spoke specifically. How did God speak? When we talk about special revelation, God the Creator revealing Himself to mankind, how did He do it? Well, Hebrews 1.1 tells us, in various ways, at various times, God spoke to the forefathers through the prophets. There are a number of different ways that we read about. First of all, direct communication. We read often, and the Lord said unto me, God just spoke it directly to a person. Thus saith the Lord. Secondly, dreams and visions. We read in the Old Testament, God tells Moses, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and I speak to him in a dream. Another way God revealed Himself is through theophanies. That is, a temporary appearance of God to get across some major point at a turning point in redemptive history. In other words, God appeared temporarily in a human form. He did it to Moses, we read about. He did it to Gideon. He did it to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's host, whom Joshua falls down and worships as the Lord, whom Moses worships as the Lord. These theophanies will often identify themselves as being God. Fourthly, God revealed Himself through spokesmen. We call them prophets. God spoke a message directly to a prophet. A prophet then stood in the gap between God and the people and representing God and His revelation and His will toward the people. And then finally, as we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, Through Jesus Christ. God's ultimate message to the world is through Jesus. God spoke. God got his message across. But the ultimate way God could represent himself is through Jesus. So much so that Jesus said, Philip, you don't know who I am? You haven't been around me long enough to know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when you see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, you see a picture of God weeping and concerned over the sins of His own people. When you see Jesus touching a leper, you see the compassion of God reaching out to the lowliest in society. When you see Jesus rebuking the religious Pharisees, you see God angry at how ritualism and religion has clouded the truth. If you want to see a picture of God, you read the New Testament. And you see an accurate picture in Jesus Christ. Tonight we want to look at how we got the Bible. How we got the Bible. Now is that an important question? Well, Jude said it was once for all delivered to the saints. How was it delivered? Is it important to know? Well, I think so because... There are a lot of people who say the Bible is not necessary, but if you throw out the Bible, then you are left to speculation as to who God is. And you have a lot of people doing that today. Well, I don't believe God is that way. I picture God as this sweet gray-haired grandpa in the sky who will let anybody get by with anything just as long as they believe sincerely in whatever. That may not be your view of God, but that's my view of God. Well, you know what? That's not the issue. The issue isn't who you think God is or who I think God is, but who God is. And, of course, we will be judged as to in the light of His revelation, our relationship to God as He truly is. But the problem is is that God has always sought to redeem man and mold man into His image. Man has made God into His image. Today, more than any other time, People don't understand when you say this is right, this is wrong, this is truth, this is error. That's confusing to them because you live in an age of relativism, existentialism. Hey man, if that's good for you, great, but it's not good for me. There's no universal basis of right and wrong and truth and error. I'd like you to turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1 to answer the question, how we got the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1. In verse 16, Peter, one of the followers, the twelve disciples, an apostle of Jesus Christ, said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You know, I love the way Peter retells the story of what happened. It is true what he is saying. But he left out the part where he fumbled. Of course, I'm sure at this point he knows that Jesus forgave him for that. But we remember what happened on the holy mountain. It was a holy mountain, but Peter didn't know it was a holy mountain. He, couldn't, you know, he was sleeping while Jesus was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And he wakes up out of a dead sleep... And he just starts flapping his tongue. He says, hey, this is a great place. Let's make three condominiums, one for you, Moses and Elijah. God interrupts him and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'm sure Moses and Elijah were wondering, where did you get this guy, Jesus? (laughs) You picked him after a night in prayer? Now Peter retells the story and he only mentions when Jesus was on the mountain and God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word made more certain, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There are four affirmations about the Bible in these verses. Actually, we should have begun up in verse 12. The first affirmation about the Bible is that the Bible is written truth. It is written truth. I want you to notice that he says in verse 12, Therefore I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, it is seems obvious to us that Bible truth is written truth because we're holding a copy of it in our hands, but there's an emphasis that I don't want to miss. Peter is mentioning his death in these verses. He says, I know that soon I will put off my tent, my physical body. But there was a question that was going through his mind. How can I make sure that this apostolic truth is passed on to these people, and they remember it. I want to stir them up to remembrance. How can I make sure they'll always have one? And so he says, Moreover, verse 15, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. In other words, he's saying, My teaching will be with you because I will write it down. He speaks about Paul's writings as being Scripture. Paul wrote them down. And I'm going to make sure after my departure, after my decease, that you will be able to have a reminder of these things. You know, we mentioned that the word Bible is not in the Bible. But there is a word, more than any other word, that is used of this book. It's called Scripture. The Scripture. The Scripture simply means the holy writings. We read about Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He shared all things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And at the end of the conversation they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as He opened to us the Scriptures? The word Scripture is a Greek word, graphe, which we get our English word, graph. And so Scripture means the holy graphs, or the holy writings, written revelation. The Scripture. Bible truth is written truth. You know, I like that. God didn't just think His message, send out thinking waves throughout the universe, special kind of knowledge that's esoteric that the Gnostics believed they could patch into. We know that Jude was written against that group. And so they believed that there was a special knowledge that no one could know except them as they communicated through all of these spiritual emanations and divine beings to finally get to God Himself. God didn't just think His truth. God didn't just speak His truth, but He used men to write the truth so that we have written revelation. The Bible truth is written truth. Sixty-six books of written truth. Next, we see, beginning in verse 16, that the Bible is eyewitness truth. Peter uses the example of being on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we may known to you the power of and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They were eyewitnesses. The people who were the prophets or the apostles saw and heard what God was doing, and they recorded it. Let me read this verse to you in the Living Bible. It says, We have not been telling you fairy tales when we explain to you the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and His coming again. My own eyes have seen his splendor and his glory. And again, the example in verse 17 is he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw it, and it's recorded in the Gospels as you read the Synoptic Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Verse 19 tells us the Bible is enlightening truth. Let's read it again. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, or as King Jimmy says, a more sure word of prophecy which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Some of you in your homes have flashlights. Some of you have them in your cars. Nights like this when people leave their lights on or their car and the distributor gets flooded or gets wet and they can't start it up. You take the flashlight out. What does a flashlight do? What good is it? Well, it's a very practical purpose. It tells you where you are and where you're going if you need to get somewhere and you can't see anything around you. A flashlight gives you guidance. It enlightens your way. The Bible does that in our journey in this life. It serves practical purpose. We're surrounded by the darkness of this evil age. The Bible is a light. It tells us where we are and where we're going and one of the proofs of its enlightenment, one of the proofs of its value, as Peter says, is prophecy. Because so many things were spoken about before they happened in such detail that when they come to pass, God said you're to look at it and go, Wow! God told us about this in advance in all of these incredible details. It's fulfilled now. And that gives you hope that if God can speak into existence all of the details about an event, and that God has His finger and His hand upon the events of this world, that He speaks about, God has control over your life. And you can trust Him for it. It brings enlightenment to you. It builds your faith up. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so, again, Psalm 19, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Scriptural truth is enlightening truth. Finally, and this is what we wanted to look at, is the Bible is divine truth. It comes from God. We notice in the verses, verses 20 and 21, there's a double assertion about the Bible. One's a negative clause. One's a positive clause. It says negatively, first of all, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. That's the negative. Here's the positive. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the stuff that's written down in this book did not originate in the mind of the person who wrote it. Though his own thoughts, his own style of writing is included... The thoughts in their origin as to their source did not begin in the mind of man, but in the mind of God. For it says, No, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. In other words, the Holy Spirit moved them. And that's an interesting word. Moved them. Some of your Bibles, I think, say carried along. What does the New International Version say? Carried along. It's a nautical term. It's a boating term that he uses for the word moved or carried along. And I think as we explain it to you, you'll understand it a little bit better. It was used for ships out at sea as the wind would take them to the destination, not determined by the boat, but the destination determined by whichever the way the wind was blowing. And so the prophets put their sails up. That is, they were obedient. They were perceptive. They were listening to the voice of God in touch with Him. The Holy Spirit filled their sails. And what they wrote was the shore or the destination predetermined by the breath, the wind of the Holy Spirit. He would blow in the direction He wanted them to go. Taking in consideration the words, the style, the temperament, the vocabulary of that person, not having to change the person. It wasn't by dictation. Okay, John, take this. All right. For they sat down to write letters of things that were concerning their own hearts. But the destination was because the Holy Spirit carried them along to that point so that we have a dual authorship. It's written by man. See, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Jude that Jude wrote the letter. But the result, at the end, the finished product, was inerrant scripture inspired by God that is breathed into... The breath of the Holy Spirit filled the cells of the apostles, of the prophets, and the result was inerrant scripture. God got his word across, carried them along to that destination. Now there are three terms that you ought to commit to memory. If you can't commit them to memory, commit them to paper so that later you can commit them to memory. Number one is revelation. It's an important word. Number two, inspiration. And number three, illumination. Let me explain the difference. Revelation is when God spoke. It's the initial process. God was getting His message across, revealing who He was to man, what He required from man, the fact that He would send a Messiah, the fact that redemption was needed, the fact that He was a sinner. Many different ways God revealed Himself. That's revelation. Revelation is done. God, who at different times, in different ways, spoke in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, and in Greek, once and for all by his own dear son. Jude said, the faith once for all time, or for all delivered to the saints. Though there might be utterances of prophecy, it will never contradict. It will only uphold the written truth. It's not new in that sense revelation is complete then there is inspiration inspiration is when the authors of the scripture picked up upon the revelation they received it and they recorded it they wrote it down the result was they were carried along by the holy spirit his will his will his truth was revealed through the inspiration The reception and the writing down of the truth. Then, and that's done too. That's ceased. That's over. But then there is illumination. That's a process that constantly goes on. And that's when you hold this book and you read it. You're in a Bible study. You're at home having quiet time. You're discussing it with a kinship group or with friends. The Holy Spirit takes a truth and brings it home to your heart. And you apply it to your own personal life. And your life begins to change. You know, that to me is momentous that you're holding in your hand. And perhaps even tonight, there are certain bits of truth that the Holy Spirit just goes, bing, ding, and it changes your heart. The Holy Spirit works through His Word to change through illumination. He's renewing your mind, as it says in Romans chapter 12. Now it says in verse 19 of 2 Peter 1, That we do well to take heed, we better pay attention to it because it's a light that shines in a dark place. Now, I want to discuss just for the next few minutes the ideas that people have concerning what Jude said this revelation, the faith delivered to the saints. How was it delivered to them? How was it delivered to them? It wasn't mechanical. what some people call mechanical inspiration, where they see the authors as stenographers. Got the tape recorders on, go for it. Because you can read different styles of different authors. For instance, you look at John, and John did not know the Greek language like Luke knew the Greek language as you compare the original texts. John uses very simple words. Luke describes things in graphic detail, having a better grasp of the language. Paul wrote very logically, line upon line. James wrote very hard-hitting. Very simple, very hard-hitting, very different than did Paul. So it wasn't mechanical. They still had their own style, their own personality, their own passion. But the result was the inerrant Word of God because the sails were up, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the truth was revealed to them, and the words that came out were the very words that God wanted to come out. We call that plenary and verbal inspiration. That is, all of the words themselves are inspired, not just the thoughts. And all of it's inspired, not just parts of it, not just the red letters. So it's not mechanical inspiration. That's some view that some people have. Other people hold to the view of natural inspiration. You know how you look at a sentence and go, Oh, that's inspiring. Oh, I read Shakespeare. What a genius he was. He was inspired. And so people look at the Bible as a group of geniuses who got together and wrote incredible stuff, but it's not the Word of God. It's just the genius of man. It's inspiring. You often find this in colleges. The Bible is literature, inspiring literature. The Bible claims to be the Word of God, not natural inspiration. Jesus Himself claimed the Old Testament books that He quoted were the very words of God. He even says, as the Holy Spirit spoke. The New Testament church in the book of Acts, referring to the Old Testament, said the Holy Spirit said. So it wasn't just some genius who sat down and wrote some great inspiring words. Then there are people who hold to mystical inspiration. And they say the authors of the Bible are as inspired as as any believer is today, in touch with God. Though it's, again, not the Word of God. They say that the Bible is more inspired than Shakespeare and Homer and Plato, Stevenson. It's at a greater degree, but it's still not the Word of God. Then there are those who hold to partial inspiration. That's obvious what it means. That is, the Bible is inspired in certain places. certain places, it's not. I call that Dalmatian inspiration. It's obvious what that means. It's inspired in spots. Not all of it. The problem with that is which spots are inspired and which spots are not. You get these guys in one room and they will disagree. They will play God deciding which is inspired and which is not. Well, I think that's God's Word. Well, I don't. I never, I've always had a problem with that. Then the person becomes the judge as to what is inspired and what is not. People who believe in this view say that the thoughts are inspired by God, but the words used to express the thoughts are not inspired by God. There's one final one that I want to share with you, and that's I find in certain Christian colleges, and that is called inspiration by personal witness. Let's say the Bible is the best we have. It sounds kind of strange, but simply put, the Bible points to the Word of God. It's really not God's Word, infallible, and errant. It becomes God's Word to you as you encounter God personally through it. At that point, that part of the Scripture becomes God's Word to you. It's the closest we have to the complete revelation of Jesus Christ, inspired in its thoughts, but not the Word of God. Now let's go back to our text in 2 Peter. We read that it was eyewitness truth. We mentioned that it had a dual authorship. In other words, God spoke, but men were moved. Don't forget that. God spoke, but men were moved. God used men to put His words down on paper so that we can have a copy of them. And the Holy Spirit respected the individuality of the author. The passion. The critical passion of Isaiah. The melancholy temperament. Of Jeremiah as he weeps over Jerusalem. The critical logic of Paul, line upon line. All different in their style. The Holy Spirit respected that. It's been said that when God made a prophet, He did not unmake the man. He used the capabilities of the person. Henry Durbinville said, As every pipe of the organ is so fashioned that it might give one note and not another, and yet all are filled by the same breath, So these souls, fashioned by the condition of humanity and the circumstance of their lives, were made each to give out his own note. Yet all were filled by the breath of the divine Holy Spirit. And has made these humans, yet divine utterances, ring with a melody unquenched and unquenchable. you got to understand something. That when these guys wrote the Bible, some of them didn't even understand what they were writing. There were times when there was direct revelation. It wasn't just a letter. And as they were writing these things down, they themselves tried to figure out what they were saying. Listen to what the first epistle of Peter says. He reminds us, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They didn't understand the implications. You mean the Messiah is going to suffer? They couldn't figure out what they were even writing, Peter said. Daniel had that experience. In the book of Daniel we read, I heard, but I did not understand. And so I asked my Lord, what will the outcome be of all this? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. What does this mean? Go your way. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to explain it to you. These words are sealed until the very time of the end. And so some of these guys wrote, and they didn't even understand the full implication of truth that they were writing. Now the next question, how did we get our present Bible? This is what I mean by that. Jude said that the truth of God was once... For all delivered to the saints. Some of us take for granted that these 66 books are the Word of God. I believe that. But every now and then a person will ask, you know, when I read a Protestant Bible and I hold it next to a Catholic Bible, there are differences. As I read the Old Testament and the Catholic Bible, there are more books. Books I don't read in the Protestant Bible. Which are true? Which are false? Who made the choice? How do we know? Indeed, if you read the Catholic Bible, you'll find in in the back of the Old Testament, there's a section called the Apocrypha, or the Hidden Writings. They were called that perhaps because they were to be hidden from the bulk of God's people as not being truthful. Before any of us can come along and decide... I like this book, even though everybody else rejects it and they have historically rejected it. I believe it's true. Therefore, it's got to be God's Word to me, which happened in the Roman Catholic Church several years ago. We have to look back and see the historical account of that document. We call the placement of the books in the Bible the canon, the canon of Scripture, which means the measuring rod See, the ancient church fathers and the Jewish fathers, as the prophets spoke, used certain criterion to say this can be included and is indeed God's revelation and others are not. And there are several points of criterion that they use. For instance, in the apocryphal books, there are many contradictions to the rest of the Bible. Many of those cannot be substantiated or validated. For instance, in one of the canonical books, it says it is a grateful thing to pray for the dead. That flatly contradicts other points of Scripture. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. When one man tried to pray his brothers out of hell or send Abraham, Abraham said, it's too late. What's been done is done. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, it's no use. About 270 B.C. Let's just deal with the Old Testament now. About 270 B.C. to 250 B.C., it was already decided which parts of the Old Testament were real and which were not. Which were considered canonical books. These will be included. And those that were considered apocryphal books. Push them aside. They're not inspired. When the Septuagint version of the Bible was translated. It doesn't matter if you remember the name of this. But under an edict by an Egyptian king in 270 B.C. named Ptolemy Philadelphus, he took the Hebrew Scriptures, commanded them to be translated in the language of the empire. At that time was Greek. The result was called the Septuagint Version. The canon of the Old Testament was set, and the apocryphal books were pushed aside and rejected as not being authoritative. This is 270 years before Christ came on the scene. So before there was Christ, before there was a church, certainly before there was a Roman church, it was rejected. That decision was reinforced by the Jewish elders at the Council of Jamnia in 250 B.C. Plus, Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament writers, none of them quoted From the books that you see in the back of those Bibles, the Apocrypha, none of them quoted from those books in particular. So there are several reasons why those were rejected, and others were included. Jesus himself, however, quotes from a bulk of the Old Testament books, 19 Old Testament books to be exact. In fact, most of his quotes, this is interesting, He quotes from the books that are most often criticized in the seminary by the critics as being non-authoritative. Genesis, Jonah, Daniel, Isaiah. All of those books that seminary professors wrestle with they're saying, I don't think really that's the word of God. It wasn't written by Isaiah. It wasn't written by Jonah. Jesus validates them himself, but none of the other books. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we have a different story. The books that you have in front of you, the New Testament books, 27 of them to be exact, were considered to be the New Testament, the Bible, by around the 2nd century A.D. That's when they started beginning putting them together. Already at this time, if you read the epistles of Peter, Peter considered Paul's writings to be Scripture. He called them Scripture. They were to be regarded by the early church as the Scripture, the writing of God or the Word of God itself. So as far back as this time, around 65, 68 A.D., the New Testament authors already regarded the Gospels and the writings of Paul as being scriptural. It came to be the total package by around the 4th century A.D. That's when the church fathers had a major consensus of the books that you have in front of you as being indeed written by God. Though it began as early as... We just mentioned in the early church with Peter, continued through Rome around A.D. 40 when they started having these discussions around the 4th century, it was finally settled. Um, How do we know it's God's Word? How do we know? I mean, the Bible claims inspiration. The Bible claims authority. Jude said, stand up for the faith. This compilation of truth, once for all, delivered to the saints. Okay, it's been delivered to the saints, but how do we know what's been delivered to the saints is the Word of God? How do we know this is really the truth? Now, this is some stuff we've covered in the past. I just want to wrap up tonight's session with a few points. We know for four basic reasons. Number one, accurate transmission. Unlike any other ancient book In history, I challenge anyone to find an ancient book with the accurate transmission of the New Testament based on 5,500 manuscripts compared to some of the ancient classics that have two or three. Quoted by so many, Tertullian. Many of the church fathers and historians quoted them and as you look at their quotes from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century all the way through there's no difference between them. They're the same. The manuscripts that contain part or all of the New Testament are the same. Based upon the original manuscripts of the New Testament. If the Bible were a secular book, not a Christian book, no one would doubt its authenticity. No one doubts the authenticity as much of Shakespeare, of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the writings of Homer, as they do the Bible. The Bible would fare much better were it a secular book, but it claims to be the word of God, and so it's scrutinized. But accurate transmission. Secondly, reliable history. One of the greatest archaeologists ever known to Israel was Nelson Gluck. And he believed that the Bible was the guidebook for scientific archaeology. And he stated, quote, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. I assert the almost incredible, accurate, historical memory of the Bible, and particularly so when fortified by archaeological fact. Let me give you an example. For years, people doubted this whole idea that in Jerusalem, there, were five, there was a pool with five porches where people would dip every time the moving of the water would come, the pool of Bethesda. People said, oh, there's no such thing. In all of our archaeological diggings we've never found such until this last century. And you can go to St. Anne's Monastery right outside. You can find this huge pool, the biggest in Jerusalem, for that purpose. With indeed five porches, colonnade on each side, the ruins of it, and one right in the middle that divided one pool from the other. You can see it today. Jericho was disputed and doubted for so long. If you've read the newspapers this last year, some of the archaeological diggings of Jericho have substantiated that Jericho had walls which fell down according to the biblical account. Substantiated just this year. For years people said, Oh, Pontius Pilate, his name is not recorded in any other history books except the Bible. We have no record of him except the Bible. The Bible could have made that up for all we know. There's no archaeological artifact until the discovery of Caesarea by the sea. And it's displayed in the Israeli Museum. A copy of it is there at Caesarea outside, which has, under the edict of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate as the procurator of Judea. Written in stone so that no one can miss it. Reliable in its history. Thirdly, a unified message something we won't get into because we've covered it so often, but 66 books written over 1,600 years by over 40 authors in three different languages on three continents, men from all walks of life who didn't know each other and yet they write of the same thing, a central message, a central theme without contradiction, a unified message. And fourthly fulfilled prophecy, perhaps, as Peter points to, the greatest demonstration that it is the graph of the divine. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We've uncovered messianic prophecy for you. Just to refresh your memory, one of the professors from a university in Santa Barbara, ex-professor from Westmont named Peter Stoner, looking at the prophecies of the Messiah, discovered there are 300 approximate prophecies concerning who Jesus would be, what he would do, the circumstances of his life, his birth, his death. In fact, he said there are 330 predictions of this person. What would the odds of any person in history fulfilling those prophecies? What would the odds be of one man fulfilling those prophecies? Astronomical, he concluded. He took eight prophecies. Again, if you've been through this, some of you have been here a long time, bear with me. He took eight prophecies. He said the odds of one man fulfilling eight of these predictions, Jesus had no control over where he'd be born, yet the Bible says the Messiah would be born in a certain place under certain conditions. He would die a certain kind of death. It was predicted Jesus fulfilled them. What would the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies? He said it's one in ten to the seventeenth power. He said... One in ten to the 17th power, that's an incredible fulfillment of odds. You could take ten to the 17th power, according to Peter Stoner, worth of silver dollars, fill the entire state of Texas two feet thick. Paint one red, blindfold a person, have him find the one you selected, and that's the same odds, one in ten to the 17th power, one man fulfilling eight prophecies. He said, what would it take for one man to fulfill 48 prophecies? One in 10 to the 157th power. And for his visual example, instead of silver dollars, as we've said in the past, he used electrons. And he said, counting at 250 electrons per minute, it would take you 19 million years if you counted at the rate of 250 electrons per minute. To count one inch of electrons would take you 19 million years. To count a cubic inch of electrons at the rate of 250 a minute would take you 19 million years cubed. Paint an electron red. Have somebody find it. The odds, 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Jesus fulfilled not just 48, but 300 to 330. Fulfilled prophecy. So Peter said, take heed. It's a light that shines in a dark place. And so Jude, finishing out verse 3 with that great phrase, once for all delivered to you, the saints. God delivered to you His truth. God revealed from heaven. It was picked up by human receptors Through inspiration, they received and wrote it down. So that the end result was the graph of God. And as you read it, there's an illumination that takes place. Your life has changed. You know who this God is. You know what is required of you. You know who Jesus is, what He's done for you. There's joy that comes from reading the Scripture. There's life that comes from it. Power in it. So contend earnestly, vigorously for the faith once for all delivered to you. Take courage. Be confident in your Bible. Don't leave your Bible around without reading it. Don't let the dust rise up, as Charles Spurgeon would say, in the last days and condemn you. Read it, know who God is, and commit yourself to, Not to the Bible, but the God of the Bible. That's its purpose. The purpose is not to fill your head with certain amounts of biblical prophetic truth, but that you and I might get in touch with the very God who wrote it. So as you underline your Bible, remember the Bible must underline your life. But it's powerful. The Bible is powerful. It's the most valuable thing you own. There was a vacuum cleaner salesman who... If you've ever if you 've got to know a vacuum cleaner salesman to really understand this this story, I mean you know their vacuum is the greatest thing ever invented. The vacuum cleaner salesman went way out in the country, found this old woman in a cabin and knocked on the door and said and just started his speech, man, this is the greatest vacuum cleaner that 's ever been made and, and you know went on and on and then she was stunned before she could say anything she he wouldn't let her have a word in edgewise he took some Dirt from a baggie in his pocket, ashes from another, sprinkled it on the carpet, poured water on it, and it rubbed it in. And she was aghast. And again, before she could say anything, she said, Ma'am, don't worry, don't worry. I guarantee you that if my vacuum doesn't completely take and suck all of this dirt out, I'll personally get a spoon and eat it. She went, got him a spoon, handed it to him, and said, Start eating because we ain't got no electricity. The greatest mechanism in the world without power does you no good. You've got, for lack of a better term, to fit the analogy, a product that is so powerful. When your life is plugged into it, and you're plugged into the divine, to God, it transforms life. It renews your mind, Paul said. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed In Greek, a total metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Your Word is a light and a lamp to my feet, to my path. It gives direction, guidance, joy, power. Read it, love it, share it, contend for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God which lives and abides forever and ever. We know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Lord, it's been refreshing, enlightening. To know that you have loved man enough to bring revelation, to reveal who you are. And then, Lord, in your gracious compassion to use human instruments with their own styles, their own temperaments, their own personalities, not violating that, but the end result being your word of truth, inspired, inerrant, infallible. Lord, I pray that we would lean hard upon it, not just as a crutch in tough times, but as a complete stretcher all the time, that we lay ourselves down upon you as you reveal yourself in your word. Lord, save us from forming our own concepts about you apart from how you reveal yourself in this book. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.